Welcome to Function. I'm Anil Dash. The idea for this season of Function came from me reflecting on the fact that I have now spent most of my adult life on the internet. But despite that, now more than ever, I don't know if I can trust the internet. I mean, it's a scary place. Every time we pick up our phones or open our laptops, we take chances with our privacy. Everywhere you turn, you're hit with hate speech or harassment online, and we're inundated with misinformation. But when I first got on the web, it didn't even occur to me not to trust it. You see, I was in my 20s, and I was in a pretty dark place in my life. And before I tell this story, I want to give a little bit of warning to you that we are going to be talking about depression and even self-harm. So if that's a topic that's sensitive for you, take a moment, catch your breath. But I hope you stay with us for this story. So back in my mid-20s, I was living in Spanish Harlem, uptown in Manhattan, and things were not going my way. You know, I think we've all been there. I didn't have a job. I uh, did not have the relationship that I'd wanted anymore. I did not have any money in my pocket. And on top of that, I had been, for years at that point, struggling with my mental health. That led to the moment where I was walking down the street in Spanish Harlem, and there were people all around, but I, I definitely felt very alone. And I felt very strongly that I wanted to end my life. It was as painful a moment as you, you go through. But not long after that, maybe because I was looking for an escape from my problems, I turned to something that I'd always loved, which is technology. I grew up having computers, but there was something new happening. Blogs were just starting to become a thing, and we didn't have today's social media, but we had the beginnings of that way of connecting to other people online. And that's what happened. I made connections to people who, in some cases, are still my friends today. I don't say this to be cliche, but the internet saved my life. It gave me a connection that I needed, and in some ways it gave me a reason to go on. I was lucky to find a way of getting better. You know, for me, it was everything from good medical care and, and diet and exercise and, and medicine and all that stuff. I'm very grateful for that. Today, I have a great job where I run a company that I'm proud of, and I get to work with amazing people. I have a wonderful family and friends, and I get to channel all that energy into hopefully making technology that can help other people too, maybe make their lives easier or help them find that kind of connection that I found. But for a lot of people today, it is hard to imagine a world where the internet is good for your mental health instead of just being a source of stress and anxiety. Sometimes I honestly wonder if it's worth it at all, if the benefits of being on the internet and connected to social media are outweighing the risks to our privacy and even to our mental health. But we can't log off. Most of us are not gonna delete our Facebook accounts or our Instagram accounts. And even if you did, there are definitely some other aspects of your life that are connected to the internet anyway. So given that reality, this season on Function, we are asking the unavoidable question, can we trust the internet? And to answer that question, we are going to be talking to some of the people who warned us about the risks of the harms that were coming our way. We're also gonna to talk to the people who are trying today to make the internet a better place. 
And we're going to start by looking at the ways that technology affects our mental health. From the earliest days of the modern internet, doctors and researchers were already warning us that our relationship with tech was manifesting almost like OCD. Originally, my work very much focused on obsessive-compulsive disorder. And with the internet revolution unfolding, we started seeing patients whose relationship with the internet was really um, described and felt uh, compulsive. So it made sense for them to come to the obsessive-compulsive disorder clinic. Dr. Elias Abujade is an author and a psychiatrist who teaches at Stanford. He's been studying tech's effect on our mental health for 15 years. We very quickly realized that the whole focus on internet addiction, quote unquote, was really missing the point because so much was going on in people who couldn't be described as addicted, but who were being transformed psychologically by the internet. And eventually, as I became more and more convinced that these technologies, of course, are here to stay and here to become more powerful and, and ever faster and ever all-consuming, I started looking for a possible silver lining. And I found that in telemental health, basically applications that rely on technology and that aim to provide mental health treatment, increase access to care, possibly make care more cost-effective. I talked to Dr. Abujade about the internet and social media, how it's changed the way we see ourselves and even how we interact with others. I'm curious to start from sort of a, you know, a very high level. You know, how do you think our adoption of technology as it's accelerated over the last several decades has changed the way we sort of look at ourselves or think about ourselves or interact? I think we think of ourselves as basically uh, spread across almost two spheres now. There's the uh, real-life definition that we've always had of ourselves, but there's an increasingly dominant ambassador that we have in the uh, online world. And increasingly, that persona takes up more and more of our energy and increasingly we define ourselves more and more as a function of this online footprint. So that that virtual projection of ourselves, is that different than the effect that other technologies had when they came into our lives, whether it was you know, television and radio, whatever else? Like we brought other devices into our home. We've had other things we plug in. Sure. No, we've brought other devices. We've brought um, other media. You know, when, the, when novels first came around in the 18th and 19th centuries, you know, people warned about them and wondered whether they would spell the end of culture and end of civilization. The same happened with radio and the movies and then TV. So with each and every wave, there are these deep transformations and these significant red flags. With internet-related technologies, however, it's been very different uh, for two main reasons, I think. First of all, the breakneck speed of technology evolution is such that before really we've had a chance to catch our breath and begin to understand it, it's, it's already moved on to, to something that's, that's faster, that's more engaging, etc. So this leaves uh, researchers and leaves us as a culture perennially behind in terms of understanding it. 
But the other big difference is the degree of interactivity, you know, much more so than any of the other media that I mentioned. And this is important because it helps explain this very rapid adoption. So if you're playing a video game, for example, you know, video games reward you or punish you. They talk back uh, to you. It's, it's a very different experience than somebody who's, you know, r- relatively passively watching TV, let's say, or minimally engaged in a movie. So that's another difference that I think helps explain the the speed with which our culture uh, has been transformed and how difficult it is for us now, even having realized some of these negative things that have come with the internet revolution, how difficult it is to to try to achieve some sense of balance between our online lifestyle, but also being in the moment offline, in real life, with real relationships, and feeling okay about it. You referenced a little bit there what the research shows. When did research start showing the internet or our digital technology consumption having an effect on our wellness, our health, our emotions? There have been red flags for a long time now. Some of the earliest case reports uh, date back to the late 90s, you know, the the patient zero, if you will, was described around 1996. So uh, there, yeah, yeah, there there have been red flags all along. I think as a culture, we refuse to see them. It was a love affair that uh, evolved very quickly, and with every new uh, iteration, every new operating system, there was a reflex that meant that you absolutely had to move on to this new, better, flashier, faster uh, device and platform. And we did that really without pausing and asking what was going on psychologically. But if we had paused and asked ourselves those questions and looked at the research that was already being published, um, I think, again, the red flags were, were there to be seen. Are there differences in the manifestation of technology's impact or the Internet's impact on on people that vary by culture, vary by age group, vary by demographics, vary by geography? You know, I I wanted to believe that. I've, I've had an opportunity to talk about these issues and talk about my work, you know, across continents and to very different audiences different in terms of cultural heritage, but also very different in terms of age groups, socioeconomics. And the, the, the more I have the opportunity to speak to diverse audiences, the more convinced I am that this is basically a universal phenomenon. A lot of the issues that we're discussing are relevant to people who may share little else. You know, a lot of the focus on when it came to problematic internet use and video game addiction was on digital natives, right? Because they grew up with these technologies, they didn't know life before Google, so we all assumed that these issues are going to be much more problematic in that age bracket. And the more we study these issues across the entire age spectrum, uh, the more similar these these forces and these transformations appear to be. So I think when it comes to the uh, negative impact and, and the forces that we're talking about, we're more similar than different. 
there are a lot of people that have found positive things online. Like, I, my, you know, my experience was that I grew up very isolated. I was in a community where there weren't people like me. And I've seen this from people, you know, in a lot of underrepresented groups, minority groups, where they say they found commiseration online. They found, uh, you know, identity online. They found people to relate to online. I, I'm curious about that sort of balance about, you know, some of the positive human interactions like is that is that also something that you see in in the research is that something that's consistent across different communities as well there are definitely many positives to be found online as a practicing psychiatrist i treat uh, many patients with social anxiety disorder for example and uh, for them social media and the opportunity to interact with someone online, break the ice, initiate a little bit of conversation before meeting them in person makes a huge difference. And it's a very positive difference. So so we don't want to ignore that. And I think if we approach the uh, internet and internet-related technologies as a medium that's one aspect of our life, but try to find a balance that integrates it along with other things that are meaningful to us and other activities. I think we're more likely to use the internet responsibly and more likely to experience its positive effects and its benefits than if we allow it to dominate and take over. So you talk about people that are facing challenges like anxiety or other related issues. And I think we can, we're all pretty familiar with, uh, you know, apps like Talkspace. There's these apps that sort of help you connect to uh, people who can help you manage your mental health, right? And in many cases, connected to professionals. I'm curious about, though, other kinds of apps. You know, I've heard people talking about they use apps for performing functions that, that, you know, you used to have to make a phone call for, that you used to have to you know, talk to somebody, maybe a high anxiety or antagonistic conversation can instead be routed to something that's a little less fraught in an app. Do people use some apps to sort of mitigate some of their challenges on social interaction or some of the things that might be, uh, you know, a personal challenge for their mental health? I'm sure some people do. I think more often, though, people who communicate via apps or or texting who communicate either anonymously or uh, with invisibility, meaning they can't actually see the other person eye to eye. This particular combination allows for some unpleasant traits to surface pretty automatically. Like we're more likely to behave aggressively. We're more likely to say negative things, to be impulsive in our our statements to be narcissistic even if again uh, uh, we're either anonymous or we're not seeing the person uh, eye to eye and if we're interacting over media that really prioritize speed over any other um, feature right so if the driving force uh, the main motivation is to return a text as quickly as you can, then again, more opportunity for these uh, negative traits to uh, to surface. So I think the more we take communication in, in the direction of uh, texting platforms and apps and away from some in-person grounded back and forth, the more likely it is for these traits to appear and for culture to move in that 
direction as well. I, there's no surprise, I think, why we're becoming more polarized as, as a society, why uh, we have less patience with people that are different uh, from us, why we're more extreme in our opinions and the middle ground seems to have disappeared. I think all this is a reflection of what goes on online. I come at this from the perspective of somebody who's made apps, but also, you know, I, I work at Glitch and we have a community full of people that build apps together. Right. And one of the trends that we're seeing is people making little tools or utilities to sort of manage their own mental health. It is about let me, you know, let me put this stressful idea into a virtual paper shredder or, you know, or an envelope and send it away. Or, you know, there's lots of different manifestations of it. And most of them are not, you know, super technologically advanced. They're not they're not pretending to be a substitute for for you know, actual therapy or things like that or for, for you know, for proper treatment. But they're like a little tool. Almost like, you know, tying a string around your finger to remember something where people are sort of saying this helps me feel better. I'm curious if you think that might be a path forward that's sort of analogous to the things that our therapist or a psychiatrist or psychologist might tell us around how to manage our unhealthy behaviors or the things that stress us out. I have two views on that. I think it's wonderful for these tools to be more accessible uh, and more creative. You know, we've been using behavioral tools like that in psychiatry for, 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 for decades, so they can be very helpful indeed. And if we find a way to democratize access to them, it would be a very good thing. However, there, there are literally thousands of apps that offer this kind of help and these kinds of tools. They have not, by and large, received any research or any uh, scientific scrutiny. And what we're seeing is that for a sizable number of patients, unfortunately, the approach now is to go to Dr. Google and, and diagnose yourself and then find all these online, untested self-help tools that you can use to treat yourself, thereby bypassing any professional in the process of getting a diagnosis or getting a prescription for the treatment that works. So that's why I hesitate to, you know, wholeheartedly recommend them, even though I do think they have a place as part of a well-structured kind of treatment approach that's being delivered with the guidance of a trained professional. What do we think might be the large-scale societal consequences of technology staying on the course that it's on in terms of people's public health or large-scale, you know, social health issues. You know, this is a very interesting moment in the history of the internet revolution. I think as a culture, as, as of the last couple of years, we've become much more aware of the downsides. We've become much more aware of the negatives. But at the same time, we're feeling hopeless about being able to change anything because we're so deep in it and so addicted between quotes, uh, all of us. Uh, I think a priority, an absolute priority, should be for our laws 
to reflect this new reality. Our online communications can no longer be governed by the Communications and Decency Act that dates back to 1996. So I would say a priority should be for the legal context and uh, the political context uh, that we are operating in for, for them to catch up with this revolution. Uh, more money devoted to researching these transformations that we've been talking about. You know, for something that has completely redefined our lives, there's actually very little by way of solid research that, uh, that we can point to, psychologically speaking, that explains how, how it is that individuals have changed the way they have and as a result how society has changed the way it has. I get to talk to a lot of people who create technology and, you know, a lot of our audience, people who work in tech and, and really sort of think about these issues deeply and care about getting it right. If you could sort of share your, your one wish with people who make the apps and the websites you use every day from the perspective of somebody who is concerned about you know, everybody's well-being and mental health, what would you ask them to do? I would tell them to not necessarily read complicated scientific papers that nobody reads and nobody understands. I would ask them to take a close look at their own online behaviors, a close and honest look. And I think if they do that, they will recognize a lot of the features and a lot of the problems that uh, we've been talking about, from impulsivity to unnecessary online violence to uh, extremism online to narcissism. These are traits and forces that all of us can relate to and all of us are guilty of to different degrees. And if they recognize them in themselves, I think they'll be more mindful of how their inventions and how their creations are playing out in the culture at large and maybe more protective of our psyches as a result. One of the reasons that it's hard to find trust in technology these days is because it's so impersonal. We put our information into these little devices in our hands, and those apps and those phones are made by people who don't even seem to care about us. They don't know us. How could they care about us? But the internet wasn't always like that. When I started building stuff online, most of the time, what I was looking at was something made by another person, not some giant company. It's like the difference between a home-cooked meal and fast food. There's got some soul in it. Maybe it's a little rougher around the edges, but it feels good. It feels like you made a connection. I even made stuff. I made simple websites, little tools. They were not a big startup that millions of people were using the product, but it felt like I connected to somebody. And it helped me find a place. But today, the web's a little bit different. Despite that, though, creators are still finding their place by building things just for themselves and the couple other people who are well, weird in the way that they're weird. Listen, I am not saying these little apps and tools take the place of a qualified mental health professional. They absolutely are not the same thing as talking to a therapist or even the apps to help you talk to a therapist. 
but it does have a lot of value to provide a little bit of joy, a little bit of peace of mind, a creative outlet. Those things are exceptionally good for us. And that's something that the internet can be for us too. So after the break, we're going to hear from two creators who are doing exactly that. No one would have ever thought an entrenched community like Hollywood can let someone come in and completely disrupt the content. I'm Ronnie Mola. And I'm Peter Kafka. And we are the hosts of the new season of Land of the Giants, The Netflix Effect. We're exploring all things Netflix by talking to the people who started the company. We'll get into their bruising battle with Blockbuster. It was 20 times larger than us, which is not a good place to be. Okay, so in many ways, I feel like so randomly lucky to have survived. We'll look at the mistake that could have ended the company. In hindsight, it was incredibly tone deaf and it blew up in our faces as it should have. And we'll talk about how Netflix took over our screens and how they plan to win the war for our attention. Land of the Giants, The Netflix Effect. From Recode and the Vox Media Podcast Network. First episode drops June 23rd. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Function. There are a lot of popular apps that help people manage their mental health. You've probably heard about some of the popular ones that connect users directly to mental health providers like Talkspace and other apps. But there are some lesser known apps that help you navigate your feelings in real time. One of the apps that I made is a worry tree app, which kind of prompts you to notice a worry that you're having and then work through it step by step. And if it's not something that you can actually take action on yourself, it will help you kind of shift your thinking away from the the negative thought loop that you're having. That's Desi Rotman. And these little tools and apps that she's created have bubbled up on Glitch. And Glitch is the company where I'm the CEO. But what all of us have in common on the team building this is we still have that ideal, that love, that the internet could be a place where you make these little projects that maybe they're quirky, maybe they're just for you, but other people are going to connect to them. And Desi and the work that she does is exactly the thing that we're all trying to enable in this community, which is building these, maybe an app, maybe just a simple website, but it's something that other people say, you know, I'm never going to get that from Facebook. I'm never going to get that from Apple. This is something that came from somebody's heart and it speaks to me and it connects to me and it reminds me of why I got excited about the internet in the first place. In my day job, I'm a QA analyst, so I try to break things, but then I also, on the side, like to create kind of little apps or programs that can help with depression, anxiety, and ways to cope with those feelings that can come up. So those kind of things, I found myself going back to time and time again, rather than relying on an app that might send me push notifications on my phone that I would either ignore or feel stressed by or not need at the time that it came up. The joy, I guess, in making your own is that you can make it work for you however it's going to work for you. And even though Desi built the worry tree for herself, other people, even strangers, are finding it useful. I've had a few people reach out on Twitter and just say, like, thank you so much. Your worry tree kind of helped me to pivot from the thought loops that I was having about XYZ. That's like a really cool and satisfying thing to know that something that I made to just like help myself is also helping other people. That's the thing about the internet. No matter how isolated you feel or how unique your problem seems, there's probably someone out there feeling the same way too. I'm Angelo Stavro. 
I work with the solutions engineering team at Glitch. In his day job, Angelo works with me at Glitch. He's our liaison for talking to the biggest tech and media companies around. But in his spare time, he creates apps that help him manage his mental health and feel better. And so I talked to Angelo about his creative process in creating those little apps. So now you've built a number of apps that are sort of focused on helping people with self-care or taking care of how they feel, maybe what their wellness levels are. I want to start with one just so people can get an idea of what that means, which is Thought Detox. Can you describe a little bit about what that app is? Uh, yeah. So Thought Detox essentially is just a place where you can type a thought, as something that you want to just get out of your head. You then just hit send, it folds up like a nice little piece of uh, airmail and disappears from your screen. Nothing is recorded, nothing is, you know, logged anywhere. It's purely just a place where you can write something down and let it just go off into the ether. It kind of came about from the more I think about my ability to do the things that I want to do, Uh, the more I realize that that's got less to do with things like task managers and calendars and really more about, you know, wrangling my feelings and and where my head's at. So some writers that I know recommend, you know, take a sheet of paper, write out all of the just crappy things that you're feeling and get it out out of your head and then destroy that sheet of paper, shred it, put it in your barbecue, whatever. I don't know, maybe that's cathartic, maybe it just helps you reason about why you're feeling the way you are, Uh, but it's supposed to give you freedom or some kind of um, closure on these emotions. You know, since not everyone's a paper and pen type of person, I figured let's make a little app that lives in your browser so it's always available to you. So the cool thing about this is there's sort of this wonderful whimsy to the illustration and animation style that this thing really just does feel like my shoulders are unburdened by this weight, my stress is floating away. How much of that was sort of intentional about the feeling that you were trying to cultivate there? Yeah, I think that is kind of important. We've we've gone away from like these skewer-morphic designs that, you know, try to mimic real-world things. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. I think there's uh, something very grounding about physical objects. And if we can replicate them a little bit, why not? And I also think that whimsy helps to just let you feel like you can play. That was kind of the thinking. Let's take it, make it look like some old-fashioned airmail stationery and and animate it so that it folds up nicely. It does feel, I think, a little more like a place where you can just scribble whatever because of that. When people think about like building an app, I think they're thinking about code and technology, like very technical things. And yet you're really coming at this almost from the emotional state that you want to create for someone. If you focus too much on the code, you forget about the the fact that your users are humans, right? And that their delight is kind of paramount when it comes to creating something that people love to use. So another app in a similar vein that you created is the Therapeutic Caribou. And I have to admit, as really as an ugly American, I'm like, to me, it feels like a very Canadian app. And you are Canadian. But tell us about the Therapeutic Caribou and what it does and whether, of course, this is something grounded in our stereotypical American view of there being caribou everywhere in Canada. You know what? It really uh, isn't. That was just a whole lot of serendipitous convergence, I think. I'd been playing around with a sentiment analysis library. And what that does is takes text that you give it and scores it on how positive or negative it feels. 
And around the same time, I created a new project on Glitch. It was randomly assigned a name like all Glitch projects, and that name was Therapeutic Caribou. Uh, the Caribou is on the 25 cent coin in Canada. So, you know, it just kind of spoke to me. And I kind of, I kind of hoard projects that are created with like these funny names just in case you want to do something later with them. It just kind of sounded like a fun and silly little project where you can talk to a caribou and the app runs a little bit of very basic sentiment analysis on what you said and it replies to you. What do you think inspired you to create these apps or inspires others to create sort of self-care apps or, you know, emotional management apps? With most apps that act like some kind of I mean, I don't want to call this a, a utility that feels a little too cold, but anything that's designed to help someone, you give them a starting point and the support they need. And, you know, there's no limit to what they can do from there. I turn to my kind of tech toolkit of these kinds of apps when I need to clear my head. But at the same time, it's it's funny because I find that the best way to have a healthy, you know, relationship with technology is to set boundaries and be a little circumspect about the tools you're you're using and you know set some expectations like um please if you need help don't use therapeutic caribou go and find someone to talk to a professional you know so these are i think in a sense just more of a way to scratch my own itch for what i need to clear my head is there some irony in using technology to hopefully reduce our stress and to take care of ourselves when we know so much of our stress is caused by what technology is doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, is it just me? Is it, is it a little bit messed up that I have to turn on Do Not Disturb on my phone? At some point, it slipped into our collective consciousness that like a device that actively disturbs you is a reasonable default. You know, what do you think that does to people, right? And then, you know, we're conditioned to feel like we always need to be connected and ready for interruption. Uh, so the tech industry adds something like screen time or digital health management. So, I mean, I don't know, uh, I can't speak to the impact of features like that, but someone once said that it's like Odysseus, you know, lashing himself to the mast, you know, to resist the siren song. I mean, there are apps that will literally connect you with a therapist and help you, you know, right? Like it's sort of a tool for really actively managing your health in those ways. And one of the things I found a lot of people say is, I'm already worried about what companies are doing with my data. I'm already worried about my privacy. I'm already worried about personal information about me leaking out on the internet. I'm curious, sort of tapping into your expertise as an engineer, if you look at the apps you've built, you know, one, what were the choices you made about what information is kept, you know, about users? But also, two, how can people trust that these kinds of things are secure or can keep them safe? In the case of both apps that I've built, and, and generally speaking, the way I try to build things if I have the, the opportunity to do so, is just don't collect anything. And nothing that anyone is, is sending to or typing into Thought Detox app or saying to the Therapeutic Caribou, nothing of that is recorded because it's not of any value to me. And so I make it explicit right in the text field or at the top of the page that nothing is being recorded. Because these are just little side projects, I can make them open source and people can check it out for themselves if they have the uh, technical know-how. But I think it's important to be pretty transparent about how you're doing these things. These are potentially very, very sensitive things that somebody might be putting into an app like this or you know, discussing over an app with somebody uh, on the line on the other side. 
you never want to jeopardize that trust. So one thing you sort of mentioned in passing there is that the apps that you've made for self-care are open source, which for people who might not be experts in this stuff, means that the code is available and people are allowed to reuse it. Does this mean that people can make their own self-care apps or they can make their own versions of what you've created? Yeah, I would encourage that. Well, with Glitch, it's really easy. There's a, a little button in the top upper right corner you can click and there's a remix option in a menu that pops out and then you'll get a copy of that app running exactly the way it is. So you want to change a caribou for your large four-legged mammal of preference? Go ahead. Uh, you want to you know, take a crack at making the conversation a little more helpful or advanced? It's right there for you. You're an engineer. You're somebody who makes technology and thinks deeply about these things. How does that inform your approach? Like, how does the idea of being aware of self-care or being aware of people's mental health needs affect, you know, the tools you create or your attitude towards making software or even working with people who make software? You've got to care. It's, it's really that simple. You've got to make sure that you're aiming for leaving people's mental state, I guess, in a better place than it was when they came to use your app. Angelo, thank you for joining us on Function. Always a pleasure. As tech creators, we have a responsibility to think about how our software and apps make people feel. That's an idea that we've kind of gotten away from. And as Dr. Abujade pointed out, losing that idea has been detrimental to the mental health of the people using our apps. In the early days, there was this element of creating something you enjoy or that you just want other people to enjoy. And in a point now where so many of our apps are just handed to us by faceless companies, there's no wonder it makes it feel impersonal or like technology sometimes at odds with our mental health. That's why I find something really reassuring about developers like Desi and Angelo and so many others. These are people that approach their work with that responsibility in mind. And it's not just them. If you look around at the corners of the internet, maybe far away from the usual giant tech companies, you'll find other developers and designers and creators using their skills and following their muse to make meaningful apps. They're making little tools that are good for your heart, maybe even good for your soul. And if we go and we seek these things out, they can make our days a little bit brighter. They can make our burden a little bit lighter. And in some rare special cases, they may even save your life. That's it for this week on Function. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our glitch producer is Keisha T.K. Dutes. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. And our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland. Thanks to the whole engineering team at Vox and a huge thanks to our team at Glitch. And you can follow me on Twitter at Anil Dash, but you should also follow the show at Podcast Function, all one word. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to us right now. And also check out glitch.com slash function. We've got transcripts for every episode up there, apps, all kinds of stuff to check out about the show. We'll be back next week and we hope you'll join us then.